Okay. And that's uh, Greg Corner. All right. Uh, we are rolling. Could I get your, your name and your position at the top of the tape? Yes, indeed. My name is Alessio Patalano, and I'm a professor of warden strategy in East Asia at the Bandit War Studies at King's College London. Thank you for joining me, Alessio. Delighted to join you, Matt, on this wonderful day on the trains heading towards Tokyo. Do you know exactly where we are at the moment? Um, I think we are in the outskirts of Nagoya, which is a very important and relevant point of discussion because Nagoya. Welcome Nagoya to is- Asia Rising, a podcast from Latrobe, Asia, and today on the program Japan's military, how it is a part of global alliances, and how it is redefining what it sees as defense. Japan's military conduct is guided by how it interprets Article 9 of its constitution. Essentially, Japan can't shoot first, it can only act in defence. But what exactly constitutes defence is becoming quite broad. Alessio Patalano is an expert in Japan's military, and so I joined him for a trip on the Shinkansen, Japan's high-speed railway, to find out more. The first thing perhaps to say is that to allow the audience to get a better sense of where the maritime fits into uh, Japanese national security. The first national security strategy uh, that was published in Japan back in 2013, and a national security strategy was the first document that was released at highest level of government, so Mm. from the prime minister's office level, and really was the, if you want, the handrails, the framework setting set of principles that inform the Japanese defense and security. And there, on the very first page, there is an acknowledgement, not just that Japan is a maritime nation, but also that Japan's unfettered access Mm. to connectivity, maritime connectivity, which most of the time means shipping and the movement of goods, but these days increasingly it also means digital connectivity provided that okay, yeah, you know yeah. 1.2 million kilometers of cables really run 97 98% of global data movement mm. that is existential right without japan's being able to have this unfettered access to physical and digital connectivity that is delivered through the sea there is no japan Mm -hmm. And this is an important uh, preliminary consideration because it allows us to understand two things. One is the responsibility that exists and that, that is perceived in Japan from a security perspective to ensure that the existing norms and rules about maritime order and stability are respected. And if you think about it, um, already since 2012, when Prime Minister Abe came back into power, one of the key elements of his agenda was really very much about this idea of rule of law and respect of rule of law, which means both non-using force to change things, but also to respect frameworks such as UNCLOS. So there's a normative dimension that is very important to national security. And I think then there is also the more, if you want, the military dimension, the military security dimension, the state-centered challenges to that fundamental notion of maritime connectivity and access to that connectivity. And that's where the naval military balance of the conversation becomes interesting. And in Japan, it has two meanings. There's a homeland security dimension to this, which speaks to the safety and security of the archipelago itself. But then there's your interests Correct. Elsewhere. And then, yeah, uh, yeah. then there is the, if you want, the beyond the national boundaries, the sovereign space mm-hmm. element to it, that stability of the maritime order, particularly on, in these basins where 
the shipping lanes that matter the most to you are located, whether it is the South China Sea, the Western Indian Ocean, the Gulf region, and so on and so forth. So when you talk about this in the context of, of Article 9 of the Constitution, which is the, the withholding of offensive military weapons and, and capabilities and those kind of considerations, and you want to protect not just your maritime security, but your assets as well, that would extend to digital interests, I guess even into um, concepts of, of like uh, space territory Correct. and those kind of things. Once you place the maritime at the centre, yeah. then things change because the maritime domain is multidimensional. If anything, you got seabed, you got under the surface, surface, above the surface, and then space. And they're kind of all interlinked. So it's a multi-domain by design space that demands a broader conceptualization of your national security. And again, it's both about capabilities as well as norms, because places like space, the idea of sovereignty is not entirely regulated. No, we're still um, trying to figure that out, I think. Correct. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah. and so in that sense, these two dimensions kind of like speak to each other. And when it comes to Japan in particular, you see this in some of the specific challenges that the country faces, because whether it is Russia in the North or North Korea or indeed China, you have a combination of elements coming together. You've got a missile and a nuclear challenge, which in a maritime-centric national security system places your first line of defense through ballistic missile defense, for example, yeah. at sea. Yeah. And that involves also space because your targeting capacity depends upon, in part, your satellite systems, your yes. communication yeah, systems, yeah, and so yeah. on and so forth. That detection capacity, right? Mm. But when it comes, for example, to China, you've got both that homeland dimension, and we know about the territorial disputes in the East China Sea and the boundary delimitation dispute, that normative and the homeland security dimension. It's also more than that, because it is about Chinese affirmation in its immediate periphery overlaps with the problem of Japan's sealing security and protection of their maritime order, whether it is the Straits of Taiwan or it is the South China Sea yeah, um, yeah. or parts of the Indian Ocean. So you see, once you place the maritime at the center, you have that normative and power dynamics that might and right, they kind of talk to each other. And on top of that, you have the homeland dimension or like the sovereign dimension very much connected to the broader strategic interests about the broader stability of the maritime order globally and especially in the basins that directly affect your national security. Okay, so tell me then about the concept of defence. How does it exist within that framework? Now, that yeah. is where the question becomes really interesting, because um, I haven't forgotten the, the question about the Article 9. No, no, no. But, well, but, 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 well, that's part of it, I guess. But, but, but it is part yeah, of it, yeah, because, yeah. because what happens is that in a maritime domain, offence and defence are a harder to define yeah and also the balance between the two is very contextual it always is but say for example in a maritime domain the physical um, if you want military challenges to sea lane stability is less existent that demands a different type of capability or does not demand a particular high uh, level of kinetic capacity. So if you've got, you're in a situation where you're defending your territory, are you talking about interpretation of one, what you're defending, and two, how you're defending it? Both. And in the maritime context, put it this way, a destroyer armed to the teeth with 
VLS vertical launch systems, yes, right? Yeah. It can perfectly be a purely defensive, if it isn't in, inscribed within a doctrine mm. that is not about strike capacity to begin with, but it is about protecting the broader space through which, for example, shipping goes, right? And so in Japan, until 1972, really, there was no clear definition of what an offensive capability or combat system is outside the context of nuclear weapons and nuclear armed capabilities. Yeah. This became really something that developed and changed over time to a point that the Ministry of Defense in the early 2000s had a very uh, if you want, limited definition of the exact capabilities that would be considered beyond the realm of a purely defensive defense posture. So, for example, American super aircraft carriers, those were considered outside the scope. But short of that, everything else is contextual. Yeah. And you see now, when the whole debate in Japan, even to the present, um, with the last national defense strategy, approved in last December, and the capability packages related to it, uh, there's a question like, you know, have the Japanese gone beyond the boundaries of Article 9? The answer is like, not necessarily, because if you have the right to self-defense, which is what Article 9 in many ways defines, then it follows from there that your self-defense is relative to the capabilities of others to bring harm to you. Yeah, yeah. That really is the benchmarking element of this. I realize that, but you know, I can see a, a position within the naval forces, within the armed forces and, and the general military for not just, you know, legal advisors, but also philosophical advisors if you're going to get to this level of how to interpret Article 9. Right. That is where the real change has occurred in Japan since sort of Abe. Mark II, so, so when he, Abe came back in power yeah, in 2012, yeah, yeah. because previously you could argue that the military had a capacity to influence. So in Japan it exists a very clear division or separation, right? There is civilian control over the military. That is under no question. And over the last three decades, some measure of transformation had started by which the military had points of political advisory roles that they could have yeah, at yeah. the national level. It was the government that at the end of the day would decide and the arguments would be played out on the diet, not so much the Ministry of Defence. The Ministry of Defence would act upon very constrained guidelines, as it were. That really has changed in the last 10 years because okay, with yeah. the establishment of the National Security Secretariat and the development of the National Security Strategy approach, what you have, you have the Japanese MOD being fully integrated together with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Ministry of um, Trade, as it were, inside the very top of the political machinery. And they all work together to advise and shape how to connect the different tools of statecraft at Japan's disposal mm. uh, precisely to achieve that balance. So military power has been reintegrated progressively in a very institutionalized fashion within the toolbox of national statecraft. And that was really one of the most important legacies that, that Abe left behind. So a, a lot of what makes the Navy then, how it interprets what it can do and how it can work within that toolbox that you just mentioned, I guess 
comes down to the importance of Imperial Legacy, which I, I realise you, you've written about, and how that's moulded the JMSDF. So how does history set it apart from other navies in the region then? I feel that this is a, a kind of system and constraint that would only work in Japan because of the legacy that they have. This is a very important point. It is important for three reasons. One, when we talk about colonial past and then sort of imperial experience, um, it's a very contested and controversial topic. And in this part of the world, uh, it is more so because the processing of the imperial experience as not just specific communities within societies, but as a broader societal process, mm. really started to occur in the 1990s. After the death of Emperor Showa Hirohito, really it's when both in Japan and in other parts of the region, from, from South Korea to China to parts of Southeast Asia, you start to see a genuine engagement with the question of the imperial legacy and experience. And of course, there were some incredibly dark places of that experience. Now, underneath that broader umbrella, one of the interesting things is that as a general rule, territories in which the Navy had a leading role in governance had actually left a relatively positive impact, mm. whether it was in Micronesia, whether it was in Taiwan, whether it was in parts of Southeast Asia. Now, because in the JMSDF, unlike the rest of the military, the imperial legacy was never set apart. It was always part of the process of how you look at back at the past to inform where you are in the present to develop your professionalism. It enabled them to retain a degree of consciousness of what that legacy means or may mean to others and also reach out to it to shape how they would approach engaging with countries within the region as Japan in the 1960s started to move towards a reintegration of itself within the broader region. Yeah, yeah. The simplest example of all is the overseas training cruises. Um, so yesterday we visited the officers candidate school of the Maritime Self-Defense Forces and one of the key elements that informs the experience there is the end of the year overseas training cruise where all the midshipmen uh, on a journey to make port calls, engage and learn about different parts of the world that are of interest to Japan. Back in the 50s and 60s, the main focus beyond the United States was Southeast Asia. Yeah, yeah. And so there you see really that legacy that informs how the professional identity of the organization is being molded, both in terms of like telling your own people, look, there is a past that you can reach out to in which we were here, we operated from here. It's normal for navies to have that kind of like international outlook and not all of it was bad. Mm -hmm. So there's, if you want the broader placing Japan into an international context and empowering naval Japan with an international standing that few other countries in the region possess, including China. That's one element of the legacy. The other thing is the professional identity as a fighting force. Nothing helps you to understand better why it matters and the challenges of performing under duress in a naval context, whereby combat is the exception, not the rule, than your own past.
And you see this across all the various levels of education within the Japanese Navy of today, that the experience of the Imperial Navy, including the more extreme versions of it, from the Tokotai Kamikaze or the ultimate heroism of the young officers in the first Sino-Japanese war or or in the Russo-Japanese war, all of that is part of how you professionally create an ethos in which you create awareness within your younger force that this is an important job and it's a job that on an average day is about ensuring that there is surveillance, patrolling, presence, diplomatic outlook. But one day it might actually turn out in a very, very different thing. And that is when all the training needs to come together because that's how you prove that you're meeting the challenge of national security. What role then does the Japanese Coast Guard play in the in the defence of Japanese interests and territory? Because I'd see a lot of overlap between those two, but Japanese Coast Guard is very different. It follows a different set of rules. I hesitate to call it a workaround, but that's the, the best word that I've got for it at the moment. Is, is that what it is in some ways? We do what... The, the naval forces can't. So, so, so the Coast Guard is, is, is a very, um, is a very uh, interesting example in Japan because, of course, there's not have a pre-war history, mm, mm. but it was also the oldest organization, if you want, in the post-1945 Sorry, there period. were quotation fingers there. Yes, and this is this a was podcast, be, yes, yeah. exactly. So, <laughs> so, so it's me sort of like making a little bit of a quotation marks around the oldest institution. Okay. Because yeah. the Coast Guard in, in Japan, of course, uh, makes always this point about the fact that in the post-1945 period, even though it was predominantly run by uh, former Imperial uh, naval personnel, coastal forces were the first ones to be set up. Mm-hmm. And even though in 1952 and then in 1954 there was a progressive split of the components that became the Navy, the, if you want, institutional setup after the demobilization of 1945 of the uh, Minister of War and the Navy, really is the origin of today's Coast Guard. So in terms of legacy, right, the Japanese Coast Guard is the oldest naval organization in Japan post-1945, in that sense. And that's because there is a consciousness in Japan in post-1945 that maritime security intended as the looking after the problems of safety around the coastal areas of Japan and law enforcement around Japan is a very much a construct post 1945, a construct that is put in place during the occupation already and it, it's something that becomes really defining for the Coast Guard. So in that sense, it's not that the Coast Guard does what the Navy does not do, is that you have a consciousness of, of a changing understanding mm. of, of what the ocean means to the country that becomes deeper and that law enforcement safety dimension to it is the one really that did not exist as such pre-1945 and is the one that the Coast Guard in Japan quickly asserted itself as, as its dominant space and it became a trademark because in the 70s and 80s uh, the Coast Guard had acquired a skill set that became also an export, if you want, a part of the aid assistance. That experience, that capacity to patrol and monitor your space in a part of the world in which law enforcement is and can be, by a large extent, a coarse good matter because most countries are archipelagic mm. or they do have very long coastlines with very rugged sort of coastlines, which demands law enforcement. So that Japanese experience 
acquired an enormous amount of value and it became really a key component of how Japan's approached foreign policy from the perspective of Matam security, trying to link that Coast Guard experience. So I'd say the two are equally important. They are complementary to each other. And it really the dividing point is whether you're looking at that law enforcement constabulary dimension as the lead or that strategic security intended as a harder security dimension to it, which still remains to the Navy. Okay, okay. So you've got a dimension there of, of, I think, diplomacy as well. There's only so many things that they can ask of Japan if Japan wants to exist as a country that only works within the realms of defence. Mm-hmm. Is it something that constrains how much they can do within an alliance and how much Japan's international partners can expect from Japan. Mm. Again, there's three things that one potentially can say about it. First of all, it pushed the Japanese to try to find also a niche for themselves. So the Japanese, when it comes to cooperative forms of endeavor and capacity of outreach to countries that are sitting on the fence and they want to find themselves in a position to be pushed to have and make a decision, but they are open to greater cooperation. Japan really has an enormous amount of potential there. Yeah. And as whether it comes to Vietnam, the Philippines, um, Indonesia, other parts of Southeast Asia, or indeed the South Pacific, Japan has been extremely successful. And that has been of great value to the United States, and generally speaking, to regional stability. The Japanese can contribute to conversations and bring, if you want, the power and, and gravitas of that understanding of international order as it is practiced and understood in the sort of Western US-led component of the international system in places where the United States, for example, cannot go. And that, I think, is, is the first point to make, that Japan's unique constitutional setup has also created a positive space for them to think about what is the added value that we can bring to our partners and, mm. and our allies. And I think in the last 10 years, they started to explore in new directions precisely because that's what they've always done. And that goes in a number of different directions, including you know the economic one when you think about CPTPP, whereby the Japanese leadership role was absolutely essential for the whole thing to come off the ground. The second point to make is about this question of, okay, so where do we set the bar of expectation? And I think in the past you could make a fair argument that the Japanese, from a political point of view, in interactions with partners, would use the constitution to shield themselves from doing more. If you came to them with a big ask, they could always say, like, well, we don't really know because the constitution, we're not really sure, allows that. So, so it was a, a powerful shield to modulate the extent to which you would want to need the demands of partners and allies. And the story of the US-Japan alliance is very much a a story of pull and push in many respects, going back to the early 1950s, really. But at the same time, and this goes to the third point, I think, you know, it cuts both ways, right? If you say, well, I'm not necessarily sure because the constitutional setup, I'm not sure that it does allow me to do so. But do you think you should be doing this in the same thought? Exactly right. When in the last 10 years you see a process in which the Japanese political elites turn this way of thinking over its head and use that like, well, precisely because the Article 9 is not all that stifling, Mm. we can actually see if we can push because the circumstances have changed. 
and I think that's what's been remarkable. I mean, if you think about even uh, Japan-Australia relations, and for example, in the context of collaboration and, and cooperation between the ground self-defense forces and the Australian um, army, um, there is a, a level of development there from HADR to cooperation in a broader sense that really can be explained only if you realize that the same arguments that 20 years ago or 30 years ago would have prevented the Japanese or would have rewarded a very cautious approach to how far you can push a partnership or an alliance, today has been mobilized to kind of like achieve exactly the opposite thing, which is, well, let's see how far we can go, really. And I think what was remarkable in the other years was that he tried to leave as part of his legacy the institutional setup for any other prime minister after him to be able to continue to do so. The last time we had uh, that sort of revolution was under Prime Minister Koizumi in the post 9-11 context where he tried to do things, but the institutional changes were such that next prime minister could just turn around and say like, no, no, I like the old model more, which is what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Abe mm-hmm. changed the bureaucratic and institutional setup in a way that you can not actually go back you can only move forward. And I think so. what we are looking at is a situation whereby the Japan that used to punch below its weight is actually now much more inclined to explore ways to punch above its weight, as it were. Yeah, yeah. But with that experience that because they've been doing very cautious over a number of decades, they'll know how far to push and, and where to go if, if they can at all. So in the spirit of pushing then, this new security strategy that, that came out in December 2022 introduced the notion of flexible deterrence operations mm-hmm. as the front line of defence. So I see that as another push, another explore. How, how do you interpret that and how might it mould what the Japanese Defence Forces can do for going ahead. So that is exactly right. That is exactly what we're talking about here. So first of all, what we're talking about flexible deterrence option is very much an understanding of deterrence as a posture. It is about setting the conditions to, well, first of all, to become militarily more credible. Credibility is essential in deterrence. Many of the the choices made about where the money for the new budget will go. In the substance, it's about stuff that really is not that sexy. It's about logistics, it's about hardening constructions and infrastructure, it's about ammunition, it's about fuel, it's about sustainability. Now, that's however what makes your military more resilient, what makes your military more capable to perform and continue to perform in a kinetic environment, that's what makes things credible mm. when you are signaling to an opponent that you're serious about stuff, right? Yeah. So in that sense, the first thing going is that they're trying to be not particularly sort of loud in what they're doing, but very substantive and tailored and focused. So capacity is a very important Impo- aspect of Capacity defense. and resilience, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very important yeah. aspect. And then you have... The other component that is also about the credibility, but again, you started to get into the deterrence, the active understanding of that deterrence posture, which is the capacity to know if and when things are going to escalate mm-hmm. and being able to be in a position to say, we're going to do this, right? Which is a slight variation, if you want, to deterrence by punishment 
by basically creating a system that is of like deterrence by threat of punishment, all right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> if you want. Yeah, yeah. And that's really what the Japanese are thinking. In the document, there is a very interesting reference to how the Japanese will improve and enhance the alliance with the United States in ISRT. Intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, and targeting. That particular change, it's one of the most remarkable things ever. Because in order to be able to work bilaterally or collectively with anyone, really, about capacity for targeting in a dynamic context with relatively short action-reaction times like the one in Northeast Asia, you are basically creating a level of integration that is extremely high and you can only achieve with the most trusted of partners and also one that really focuses on, I'm not just doing this because I'm posturing. No, 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 no. If you actually go past this point, I will hate you, right? So there is a capacity for a focused and tailored bespoke behavior that really indicates that element of flexible deterrence is not about just arming yourself to the teeth, mm. but empowering yourself with the capacity to surgically disable the enemy, raising the cost for them of escalation. Because if they really want to achieve the objective and you have a capacity to disable part of the process, you're already moving the goalpost and it's making harder for them because in order to achieve the same objective, they will have invest more, therefore, leading naturally towards escalation, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, I think what is happening here is part of this conversation and it's a conversation that has two dimensions. It's like credibility on one hand and deterrence by the threat of punishment, if you want, on the other. Yeah, okay. Well, my final question, I guess, then for you is, is there a public perception problem then with the people of Japan who are attached to the concept of peace, very proud of the concept of peace and what they've achieved within the last 70 odd years post World War II, but at the same time how this defence, how this deterrence is interpreted is gradually, mm. incrementally moving the goalposts to what could be something else in the future. That's an excellent question. And I think the way to answer it is by breaking it down in, in two components. You've got public perception as enablers for national policy, mm -hmm. right? Because we make a choice and then... then this then, is a democracy. Exactly. Yes. So, so if people don't like it, they vote you out of a job. So, mm. so there is that. And I think in that sense, actually, things have moved along quite a bit. I mean, the surveys conducted in Japan about the importance of security and threat perception have changed significantly. The Japanese now are much more comfortable to say, we live in a really tough neighborhood and yes, we and need this, defense. This is know, the reality. This of is it. the reality yeah. of it. So, so, so I think they are, but that doesn't mean that they're not longer attached about, you know, the, the proud of the peace dimension or what they stand for. I yeah. mean, as a matter of fact, that's always been the case. That will continue to be the case. But I think there is um, a disconnect between the, especially the English language and the Western literature on Japanese pacifism and what actually that means in reality. I think there is a disconnect there. Okay. There's always been another play of what it means for Japan to be a pacifist society. It's always been a relative concept. And I think now that the perception of that relativity of the security space has changed, the threshold of tolerance for what you need to do to maintain the peace has changed as well. So I think today you've got a situation that when we talk about public perception, 
it's remarkable, not easy, but how much support you'd have at the national level for policy action as a general proposition. The other side of that coin is like, okay, so now everybody understands that security matters. What hasn't happened yet is like, then the people think like, well, because it's my problem, I should do something about it. Yeah, yeah. And so when it comes to recruitment, retention, seeing a job in national security, I think that has changed, but it's not changed in a way that it would match that change of perception. So the real gap is not so much in public support for defense and security, but rather active commitment to wanting to be part of the process to meet that change, right? And the demands of that change. In that sense, perhaps there is some more legwork. And this is very much the flip side of that coin of peaceful Japan. Mm -hmm. Because the military was put on the sidelines of society, it was never looked after in the way the private sector developed. And so today you have really that considerable gap between the private sector and this particular aspect of civil service. It's going to be interesting to see, particularly over the next few months, in the next couple of years, as the um, national security strategy is implemented. Yes. I think what is going to be really interesting to see is how that will affect and we talked about this in terms of capabilities, in terms of expectations with partners, in terms of how the Japanese translate their perception of security into a different behavior. From my perspective, the three things to keep an eye on are going to be the capabilities piece and how they work with partners on capabilities. Yes. And that means not just the United States. So GCAP, the global combat air program with the UK and Italy, yeah, it's going yeah. to be really interesting to see how it gets sort of on track and and gets off the ground because that really will give you an indication of the maturity of Japan. Mm -hmm. All the process of change that I described in the last half an hour, I think, indicates a growing degree of maturity to be a serious security stakeholder. Developing capabilities with others, particularly sensitive capabilities, ultimate manifestation of that. So GCAP is something that I would keep an eye on as a manifestation of that maturity, which leads to the next thing, which is AUKUS Pillar 2 projects Yes, yeah. becomes really another space of great interest because the Japanese have been working towards enhancing relationship with Australia, with the United States, with the UK, and AUKUS Pillar 2 is the open architecture element to the AUKUS project in the sense that specific elements of specific capabilities actually are not just for the three countries themselves. Yes, yes. So it's yeah. not, I think as part of that sense of maturity, it's going to be interesting to see how the Japanese relate to that. And the third thing is the leadership that Japan has proved to possess in maintaining the conversation of uh, regional stability through minilaterals, the trilaterals that we talked about, or the quad. Mm -hmm. as well as improving the relationship with South Korea, as well as relationship with ASEAN. If the next White House administration changes its approach in foreign policy, it's going to be really interesting to see how the Japanese will play the role that they did under the Trump administration years, where together with a selected few, including Australia, really stepped into the realm of keeping things on balance as the United States was wavering a bit. So these three elements, maturity in terms of millennials and, and capabilities in which they are involved, engaging with others in that sort of 
strategic convergence over using capabilities to make a bigger point about collective action. And third, leadership, particularly at the regional level, to ensure that no matter what happens, we'll see a continuous effort towards stability. These are the three things in which the Navy will play a very important role, but defense and security as a whole will play an important role because, as we said at the very beginning, this is a multi-domain, if you want, complex approach to it. Alessio, thank you very much for your time today. Well, thank you, Matt, for your questions. This was lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Fujisan is not in sight yet, so, <laughs> so we're doing well. How far did we get in that time? I think <laughs> we're probably going to see it in about uh, half an You've hour. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on any podcasting platform. My guest today was Alessio Patalano from War Studies at the King's College of London, and you can follow him on Twitter at Alessio Naval. This episode of Asia Rising was recorded in Japan on a trip funded by a grant from the Australia-Japan Foundation and was produced at La Trobe University in Melbourne on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. I'm Matt Smith and thanks for listening.